right, let's take just a minute to uh, review where we're at, where we've been. Uh, we said the church is saints together, just kind of a going definition. And um, another way to say that is that the Bible speaks of, of the people of God, or the New Testament people of God, in a very plural way. Okay, the story is about people, these people that God has redeemed and is doing something in, and uh, much more than just kind of an individual way that we read a lot of scripture as individualistic kind of Westerners that are kind of raised in that way. Uh, the body of Christ is the first kind of metaphor for the church that we looked at, and the body of Christ, I think, is a great example of uh, the two words we looked at in the first week, ecclesia and koinonia, ecclesia being an assembly or a congregation, and koinonia being a sharing or a participation together. Well, you can't be the body of Christ without being with and sharing with one another. That's like the body brings that alive really well. Uh, we're all connected. So um, I hope that you'll keep in mind if you're on the family vacation, that picture that was kind of scary, but that we drew of just the, the body of Christ of Novo Church. Um, but just to see, hey, this is like, this is what um, God is, uh, is, is crafting and what he has put together in us, the, the body of Christ, the saints together. There's a second metaphor that I want to look at tonight, and we'll look at it also next week. And this is a metaphor for the church that is very, very, very familiar to us, more probably than the body of Christ. We talk about it all the time. It's by far the most common metaphor in, of the church in Scripture, and that metaphor being that the church is a family, the family of God. Now, can anybody think of specifically a place that the New Testament says explicitly something like the church is the family of God, or God's people are his family. There's not really one, okay? Um, we don't have an answer to that. So how can I say that the church is the family of God? Like, what's, If that's the most common metaphor I'm saying in the New Testament, why would I say that? Like, What are some other words that we hear that tell us that Oh, it's like it, we're like a family. What are some of those? The body. Okay, so the body, we'll, we'll kind of set that aside as, as another analogy, but what was that? Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, yeah. Word. God the Father, yeah, that's family language. What's that? We're sons and daughters. Okay, so we're sons and daughters of God, or children of God. Brothers and sisters to each other. The so. bride of Christ. Got it. Bride of Christ is another familial term, yeah. The groom. Okay, Christ, the, um, yeah, that's, that's all part of this, this family language, sure. Um, there's a, a verse in 1 Timothy uh, that talks about treating older men um, as fathers and older women as mothers and younger, as, younger women as sisters, younger men as brothers. So there's all this kind of familial language. The, some of the most common, God being father, us being his children, his sons, daughters, us being brothers and sisters, those are the biggies. But that's all over the New Testament, right? That kind of language, even though we skip over it, which is some of what we're going to look at tonight. Um, we are familiar with the, the family language in Scripture, uh, especially in the New Testament, for um, who we are as God's people. Now, 
This, I think I said several weeks ago, of all the metaphors that the scripture gives to the church, my opinion is that this family aspect is one thing that we are um, stronger at than others. So um, you might not, as far as the body of Christ analogy goes, you might not yet know, I think a, a number might not think, well, I know kind of what, how, how I serve and contribute to this body. Now, now hopefully we all understand that there is, there is a part, a unique part that God has put us here to play, but maybe it's still kind of foggy and maybe that's something that you still have to think through. Um, we're going to talk in a couple weeks about the church being the temple, and um, maybe that's not something that we talk about real commonly. But certainly, I hope, um, to some extent, I hope that very tangibly you have seen that we try to operate as a family. I mean, we're sitting in the living room right now, um, and we are potluck together. Um, just to name a couple of just simple examples. But I, it, it certainly goes beyond that in our church. Um, we have a lot of room for growth, obviously, in that. And I think that um, as we explore some of that familial language tonight, next week we'll see, wow, we, we, are, we maybe aren't doing this quite as well as we expect that we um, are doing. So um, I want to just kind of drive home today the family analogy that we see in Scripture. Now, some of us uh, love our families, like family is a good word, and we um, enjoy them and like to be around them, and when you think of your earthly families and your brothers and sisters and your mom and dad and your aunts and uncles and whoever, for the most part, you, you like a lot of them. Maybe that's some of you. Um, hopefully... If it's a if it's a good if you think positively about your family, which I know isn't the case for everyone, um, that's where maybe you go to feel comfortable, to feel like you can completely be yourself, to feel like they're gonna they're gonna get you, they understand you because you spent a lot of time uh, together at some point in your life. Um, and so, if that's you, which I hope that's some of you, I know it's not all of you, um, but if that is you. I, I, what I don't want to do when we talk about the, the church as family in the next two weeks is make you think less of your earthly family, um, but I hope that scripture will convince us to think more of our heavenly family or our spiritual family. Okay, so I'm not trying to diminish how wonderful some of your all's families are. Um, Tonight's going to be a little more um, just kind of biblical and cultural background of, of, of the biblical idea of family. Next week, stay with us. It's going to be much more practical, and here's how we live this out. Family of God. So we use family of God all the time. Um, I even see it even in this church. We'll say, hey, this is, I'll hear somebody refer to, well, this is my church family. Or they say on Slack, hey, fam, you know, and such and such is going on. Um, which is really cool, and uh, it warms my heart. Um, some of the family language, and I say that, I said it kind of jokingly, but it does. Like, I, I, love, um, I love to hear that, and I, I feel the same. Um, some of the family language in Scripture, we, I think, are overly 
familiar with and kind of immune to. You know what I mean? Um, these words that we said, brothers and, uh, and father, like they have significant meaning and they aren't just synonyms, like they're not just a one for one substitute for another word that we could use in its place. Like so we use, we do that in probably in, in language in general, but like we use words interchangeably, like Christian, believer, born again, follower, saved. We kind of just, you kind of pick your favorite or whatever kind of comes most quickly to you. You just say it kind of as a synonym and you don't think much about it maybe. Um, are those, what are those words I just said, are they the same thing? Well, yeah, they're kind of the same thing, but they each have their own nuance to it. And so I want to look tonight just at two words that we can brush over really uh, too easily. And we kind of might use them as just a substitute word for another Christian word when they really have deep, metaphorical, picturesque meaning of who we are as a church, who we are as saints together. Okay? The first word of two is father. You guys agree that um, father is, is maybe a little bit thoughtless sometimes when we use that word of God the Father. Like, we've been praying probably throughout church history to, to the Father, Heavenly Father. And a lot of times, like for me, it's, it's, I used to say, Dear Lord, when I was growing up. That's how I would start a prayer when I was talking to God, because that's kind of how I was raised and what I was taught. And then at some point I saw, oh, Jesus tells his disciples to pray like this, our Father. And so I started starting my prayers with Father. So I always say Father at the beginning, but what am I really saying? I'm just saying God. I'm not actually thinking about the Word, and it's okay to address God. It's good to address God as Father. We'll talk about that. But it's kind of lost its, its meaning to me. Does that make sense? Um, but it hadn't lost meaning, and it had very significant meaning to the person in the first century um, Jerusalem or in Judea when they would hear Jesus and the uh, disciples begin to refer to God as Father. So in the Old Testament, um, it is not common to refer to God with, a, with the Father language. Okay? Um, maybe 15 times or so, God is kind of, he, he's mentioned kind of like a father. I think there's a couple in the Psalms and different things. He's the, the father of the people of Israel. Certainly they would never address him as father, but it was just, this is, it's, it's, it's mentioned there, but 15 times in the whole Old Testament, okay? Um, and there was other words that they would use for God, right? They'd use Yahweh or Elohim or Adonai, these different words. El Shaddai, we can go through the list. That tells us something probably about how the Israelites viewed God. By using those terms, they rightly understood God as holy, powerful, creator, other, master, king. Some of kind of the, the meaning behind some of those words that they were, they were, they were calling God, that's kind of how they, how they understood their relationship to God. Terminology for God makes a drastic and sudden shift when you get to Jesus. So... Jesus, when he's a boy, if you remember, he uh, gets separated from his family somehow, and um, they find him, his mom and dad find him in the temple, 
And he says, um, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Now, I don't know if that's the first time Jesus called God his father, but he's talking, he's talking about the temple. That's God's house. And he refers to God as father. And father kind of becomes the favorite way that Jesus refers to God, it seems, which makes sense because Jesus is God's son, so he calls him father. Okay, But the shift comes for the people of God not just Jesus, somewhere when, I think, early in Jesus' ministry, like I mentioned earlier, he, he tells his disciples, okay, guys, I, I want you to pray like this. Here's how you ought to pray. And he says, he doesn't say, dear Lord, or oh, creator God, or almighty God, or he doesn't use another term for God, but you guys know he says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Again, you won't find an, an, an Old Testament passage, or even if you look at the writings between the Old and the New Testament, we, you won't find people addressing God as Father. It's just not what, or calling him Father, like to his, to his face, so to speak, as they pray. Um, that's very different than us, because we, we hear it all the time. We're used to it. If you, if you grew up in the church, if you grew up praying, then maybe you've heard that terminology a lot. But make no mistake, for, for Jesus to suggest to his disciples and these, these Jews to, uh, that they ought to address God or that they are able to address God Almighty, the Creator, Yahweh God, the God that they serve, as Father, it's, it's a big, significant deal. It's a change in their mindset. And it wasn't just Father like a religious kind of word for God. Um, it was... Um, we read in, in that Matthew verse, our father, we read, it's a Greek word, pater, um, which is probably translating the Aramaic word that Jesus said, which was, what? Abba. Abba. Um, which was a term that you call your dad. So maybe you've heard, um, probably some of you have heard, well, Abba is this kind of a childlike term that you would call your, your father. It's kind of like daddy or something like that. I think... From the best of my understanding, yes, it's what a child would call his dad, but it's also what an adult would call his dad, because it was the only Aramaic word for, for dad or father. So it was just, it was just commonly, but it was, but it was a, a real, not just a kind of a, a, it wasn't a religious term, it was just, God, he, he is my father. He, he was one half of the person that, that made me my father. <coughs> the word father, then as opposed to the Old Testament, is used to describe God some 250 times in the New Testament. It's super common, so common that we get kind of immune to it. All because it seems that that starts right about the time that Jesus says, here's how you pray, our Father. So if you can, like, just imagine that shift in the early, um, in, in, in that first century Jewish mindset, it's one thing to, to address God and call God God or master or, or teacher or creator, but it's, it's another thing to say God is, is father, right? There's a, there's a whole new significance in that. Um, and it's, so it's not just that we say we can serve God as this divine sovereign, and we have to, but we have the love then of a father because we are his children. And so there's this whole kind of new warm 
meaning uh, to who God is. I love uh, that. Um, that's one of the billions of things that I'm thankful for in Christianity is that we can address God as Father. Um, in Islam, there's 99 different titles for God. None of them is Father. Um, that's a privilege that, that we have to, to understand, to know God as our Father. Um, and he, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, kind of talking on behalf of God out of the prophets, I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Says the Lord Almighty, he says that to his people. I will be a father, you shall be my sons and daughters. So, how does that even happen? Like, Why can we call God Father? What has he done for us to make that a possibility? The answer is adoption. I love, love, love the picture of adoption. Um, a, a child needs loving parents to care for them, and a person chooses to take them in, hopefully this is the way it goes down, and, and, and makes them fully, legally, entirely no different to them than a, a biological son, a biological daughter. They're a full member of the family in adoption. The same rights, the same care, the same love, the same uh, inheritance, all of those things transferred to an adopted son or daughter. Typically, actually, even more so. Let of the Caesars would be actually a, the adopted son. Yeah, not, that they prefer not. over their son, right? Yeah, yeah, they... they That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, this is what, and, and now, not that portion of it, but this is what God the Father, it's like what God the Father does for us. It's another kind of cool illustration. It's like to give us a picture of, oh, this is how God is. This is what he does for us. Ephesians says, he, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So God's will, his overpowering desire, his loving will was to make us his children, and he legalizes that through adoption through Jesus. Galatians says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Through Jesus, the perfect son, he, he enacts our adoption um, as his sons and daughters. And those, those transfer of rights and all that come with sonship happen upon us. So here's, I want to tell you guys the cool thing that happens even beyond uh, what we can understand from adoption. Has anybody ever um, been uh, to that to an adoption hearing that's kind of the finalization of the adoption where they're actually where they actually have like you're you're with the parents and they're kind of they're receiving the child and the judge, they're going usually I think the last one's a little bit ceremonial but they're signing the papers and just make sure you know what you're doing, right? Um, super exciting time for the parents, for the child. Hopefully it's just like, this is um, something super exciting to be a part of. I've never been a part of one of those. Um, been uh, invited, and maybe I'll get the chance at some point. Um, I presume that at some point in an adopted child's 
life, many will go through some questions of, of belonging. Um, maybe it comes up at different points, and obviously you can be adopted at different ages, and, and things kind of hit you, and you have understanding of different things. But that, especially if the parents have biological children, right, you can understand um, the adopted one may wrestle with, am, am I truly like the others? Um, maybe it takes a significant amount of time, probably depending on the age of adoption, to begin to call that parent or parent's dad or mom or, or, or both. Maybe, maybe you know somebody, maybe that never happens. Maybe that's just not something that, that feels right. Um, I've heard of adoptive parents who have uh, worked so hard to try and, and convince their child and show their child that you are my child, you are fully loved, you are fully a part of this family, you are fully accepted, just as all of my other biological children are. Um, but the wrestle, understandably, from, from what I understand, can still be there at times, because, because technically or um, biologically, maybe you think, well, they, they didn't make me. Their DNA is not in me. I don't bear resemblance to them. And some of these questions, I know I'm legally theirs, but I know the transaction's gone through, but are, are, are they really, am I really a part of these parents? Um, am I really a part of this family? Can I really call this person dad? Can I really call this person mom? Is this ever going to fall off the table and be taken away? And um, hopefully, hopefully often that those things are confirmed in the child that, that yes, they are fully a part of the family. Yes, these are their parents and, and, and the good scenarios that um, hopefully is the case. Um, Paul answers those questions for us that we may ask as adopted children of our Heavenly Father. And he says this in Galatians 4, 6. He says, because you are sons and daughters, talking to us, the adopted ones, as you are sons and daughters, like, let me, I'll start there, this is what you are. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you think about it, like part of this adoption process of God with us is not just a signature on a paper, not just a legal transfer of rights, of sonship, but he actually then places a part of himself, his DNA or his spirit within us. And because we have the spirit, we are assured that he is our father. Romans 8 says, have you received the spirit, or you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I love that. And John says, see what kind of love the Father has, has for us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are, he says. So um, just a couple of questions uh, out of that. First question is when or how are we adopted? What, like when does that adoption take place? Who who gets adopted? Um, again, Paul makes it clear that 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 adoption happens through faith. Galatians three twenty six in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God 
through faith, he says. Now somehow, you know, I don't know how all this works together, but somehow, um, God, we read in Ephesians 1, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be his adopted children. And he, he doesn't adopt everyone. But at the same time, becoming a child of God happens to anyone who has faith. Okay? So we read in John, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you have the right to become a child of God when you receive him, when you believe in his name, when you have faith. But Paul also makes something clear about faith in Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. So even that faith itself seems to be coming from a gift of God. So on, on the one hand, this is kind of the paradox, on the one hand, becoming a child of God happens when the child says, I want this, I, I, I want him as my father. But just like a, a true adoption, it's ultimately the, the, the parent or the adult that's deciding to adopt. They're, they're making the choice. The adult gets to determine and say, hey, you, I, I want to adopt you. The child doesn't say, hey, you, you have to adopt me. It's, it's the parent deciding to do that. And out of grace, that's what God does for us. He says, I, I, I want to adopt you. And then for all who receive by faith, um, they become his children. Brings up the question, and I, I think that um, I've had this conversation with some of you, but you think, well, aren't we all children of God? We all God's children. Like that's a, a common thing that that I will hear. We should treat everybody with respect because we're all God's children. Um, I I don't go around correcting people uh, when they say that, or I don't make a practice of it. But if we are truly made sons and daughters through faith, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Does everybody have faith in Christ? No. So. I, I would say it follows, not everybody's a son of God, or not everybody is, is a daughter of God. In John 8, Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. He says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Uh, John also writes, 1 John 3, no one born of God, which stop there for a second, there's another like family kind of analogy, born again, we won't even really talk much about it tonight. Um, when you're born, you're born into a family. When you're born again, you're born into God's family. You're a child of God. If, if you're not born again in, into the, the father and his family, then you're not a child of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Then listen, by this John says it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. So is everyone a child of the heavenly father? I think scripture is clear that no they're not. Now does that mean that they're not God's creation? No. Does that mean that they're that that somebody who isn't a child of God is unimportant or should be treated poorly? Obviously not. That doesn't mean that somebody who isn't a child of God should be treated disrespectfully, okay? The, uh, we're, I'm not saying that, oh, you're not a child of God, so now I can kick you and I can spit at you. Um, but I do think it's important that, and helpful if we just watch our language um, about the, the children of God 
unless we are deceptive with our words in in communicating that everybody is a part of this family of God. Okay, so um, I don't know if any of you grew up in a house that you had like these friends that come over and they stay at your house and they're like always there and they like hang out on the couch and usually there's some problem maybe at their house that they're not into and their parents are fighting about it. So they stay at your house a lot, your parents are down with it and they eat out of your refrigerator and everything and it's kind of cool and it's like, like did y'all have some of those friends? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, they're, they're, or you are one of those friends. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's kind of like that, but, but here's what happens. When your family packs up to move to another state, they don't come with you usually. Okay, they're 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 still there, and they they go back to to the family that they're a part of. There's an exception. To, I don't know. I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but um, kind of like that. So everybody is created by God, and that gives them some intrinsic value. But not everybody is born of God. Not everybody has the the right to call him Father. Okay. Um, And what we're about to talk about in a second is we have a unique relationship with those who share the same father. That's what we're kind of getting at in our family of God analogy here. So I want to kind of cut in here for a second and talk, um, Phyllis, and this is super interesting to me. Um, I think it's beyond interesting. It's helpful, but I hope it's interesting, too, to you. and gives some, just a, a bit of idea of some ancient Near Eastern kind of cultural stuff that's very different than modern American culture um, to help us understand the, the family language that we see in scripture, okay? Um, in Jesus' day, in this Roman world or Greco-Roman world, people prioritized the, some of this will be review for some of some of you, um, people prioritized the group that they were a part of more than they prioritized themselves as individuals. Okay? Um, they were loyal to their tribe. They wanted to honor the tribe that they were part of. They would do everything possible to honor their people, even at their own expense. Okay? Um, there's still cultures, plenty of cultures like that still today that are very group strong in mentality. And you're willing to take... Um, you don't want to be shamed yourself, not because it's something about yourself, you just don't want to shame your community. I say that it's different than America because we tend to, even with a really close group, a family, sometimes, well, I'm going to look out for number one first, even if it's to the detriment of my, of my family. Um, not to be too harsh on us, but that, that can be the case. Um, the strongest group relationship, this should be no surprise, um, in the ancient Near East would be the family unit. So more than a, a social group or where you live or whatever was your family. And you think, well, that isn't much different than us in the U.S. Like my strongest group connection, maybe your strongest group connection is, is to your family. Um, but I need to explain how in ancient Near Eastern family, how you determine who your family was, because it's a little bit different than how we determine who our family is. In the day, in in Jesus' day and area, family was determined by your patrilineage. 
or through the males, the family line or the family blood is passed on, so to speak. So your family in the people who are who are receiving these, these first century writings and, and teachings, your family is, it, if you think about it, um, like you think about the genealogies in scripture, and so-and-so is the son of so-and-so is the son of so-and-so is the son. It's like, well, what, and what about the daughters? Where did the daughters go off to? And it's like, well, they were married to the, maybe this other guy who was the son of so-and-so and the son of so-and-so. And the, or, or maybe it's the other way around. This was the father of this person who was the father of this person who was the father of this person. Um, so if you, like if you were to draw out, I should have brought the whiteboard, if you were to draw a family tree, say you have a dad, he has two kids, a son and a daughter, okay, the son has some kids, the daughter has some kids. The, the family line is passed through the males, okay, this is just, how, I'm not saying this is right, but this is what happens, the family line is passed through the males, so that grandpa has, has his son and he has grandchildren on his son's side. The grandpa is related to his daughter because he's the male and he's, his blood is passed down to her, but those grandchildren technically are not a part of his family. Mm. Who are those grandchildrens a part? Whose family are they a part of? The family she marries. Yeah, whoever she has married into, they're related by blood through that male line and off into a different family, okay? Um, if you kind of would draw out a family tree, and you would, you would say bold one family and how they're all related to each other. It's not that women aren't involved in it. The, the daughters of whoever dad, they're, they're related to their dad. They're, they're not related, it's not the right word, but their daughters are family with their dad, but their children then is, is cut off and they're a part of a different family, right? Um, if, you, if you would draw that out and like highlight the family together, you would see that the husbands and the wives weren't technically even a part of the same family. So we think about, in our society, you have, we get married and now we start a whole new family unit, me and my wife, and then we make kids and that starts kind of a whole new thing. Um, but in the day, and what I wanna um, point out is that your spouse isn't even as much family as your paternal or your, your patrilineal um, family is family to you. Okay, you will see it, um, or, or the strongest relationships that you have is with your dad, with your brothers and sisters, and if you're if you're a brother, if you're a boy, it's with your kids and that family that's passing on, are passing along. Um, your dad, are you getting this? Your dad and your brothers and sisters are are your family. Mom's kind of in there somewhere, but she's actually a part of her dad's line. Mm. The marriage relationship itself, now this isn't to say it, it wasn't important. The marriage relationship was still a contract back then, and there was still a lot of cool romance that happened in the marriage relationship, and it wasn't just that you you, you just don't live with your spouse, you don't have anything to do with them. No, the, the marriage relationship was, was very important, um, but it was a bit more about honoring your family than it was about the marriage. So the family wanted to produce offspring to continue on the family line, and that's the maybe the main reason they get married. You don't just get married because you're in love with somebody, and the, the reasons that we maybe get married in our society. Um, they were arranged marriages, right? So 
Um, Austin and I were talking about this today. He and Maddie didn't have an arranged marriage. But um, arranged marriages, I don't think, are as awful as maybe they sound to, to some of us. Um, and actually, I, I think if you probably looked at the statistics, I can't prove this, but I think you'd find happy marriages and arranged marriages just as much as you'd find long happy marriages and non-arranged marriages. Uh, just a little side note. But, um, so it's not to say there wasn't romance in marriage, but the romance and that kind of connection was secondary to your, to your true family ties, okay? Um, so you would, if you had to betray somebody, you would betray your wife or your husband before you would tray, betray your dad or your brothers and sisters because that would be a that would be completely dishonorable. Your spouse, well, it's kind of their family. So um, there's you could look through a bunch of examples in history of this, and even there's modern day examples in societies that are still kind of like this. Um, so uh, Herod the Great, um, the uh, king of Judea at the time when, when Christ was born. Remember, he's the guy that kills all of the young uh, male children to try to get rid of Jesus, this possible Messiah. So Herod the Great, I think, had four wives um, along the way, but one of those wives was uh, Miriam, or Miriam two, one or two. Anyway, he, he has, he's married to this woman, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes all about their marriage, and, and they had a very loving relationship, and they were very romantically, like, they, they loved each other. It was an arranged marriage. It wasn't that they married because of that romance, but it was, um, nevertheless, they enjoyed the marriage together. Well, at some point, um, Herod the Great's sister, his family, because they're related to their dad, he, they're the same dad, his sister and his wife, Miriam, getting a tiff about something. I don't know what, I didn't read in a lot of detail about it. But at some point, Herod the Great, because of the culture that he lives in, decides to side in the argument with his sister, and that meant putting his wife, Miriam, to death. Because he would rather, it was more important and more honorable to him to go along with his family and the commitment to his family than it was even to a commitment to his spouse. So, Herod didn't marry for family, or, or he, he married for family reasons, not romance. He got some romance out of it, but when it came down to it, his family was, was more important to him. His, his family, as they understood family, was more important to him than even that marriage relationship he'd had. So, the male bloodline is what matters, okay? Some of you may hear that, and that might piss you right off, and think, that's, is there something wrong with that, right? Um, and, and before we move on, and I say, why even bring all that up? This isn't to say that the culture that the Bible was written into was correct in thinking those things, okay? So... Um, I think you could draw a pretty sound biblical argument that the marriage relationship ought to be actually the closest tie in commitment and loyalty that we have with anybody. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and hold fast to his wife because, and the two shall become one flesh. So I think this isn't to make a comment on it's right or wrong that this is how the society was at the time. I think there's probably something that, that is wrong about it. So I'm not trying to point that out. It's just the way that it was. And the implication of that, I'm saying, in the culture to these people 
is that your loyalty at the deepest level was strongest with your brothers and sisters, okay? To the point that, and if you, if you read some historical accounts, you would run probably to your brother or sister for emotional support and affection and care, oftentimes before you would run to your spouse for that. A, a woman would have probably, to, by our standards, an uncomfortably close relationship with her brother or her dad. Nothing sexual, but something that our society would probably look at and say, wow, that's really unhealthy that you're so close to your brother, you're so close to your dad, you should be that way with your husband. But the closest tie, the most important connection, the deepest loyalty was to family, um, which would be um, a, a brother or sister. So why do I even bring all that up? In the New Testament, how do Jesus and Paul and John and Peter begin referring to one another? Brothers. It's all over Scripture. They're calling one another brothers. Now, I don't want you to skip past this or think, oh, this just sounds like the Baptist church I grew up in. Oh, hey, Brother Bill and Brother Mark. Um, this is the this is the second um, familial term I just want to bring up tonight that we can just breeze over. So father, we kind of oh, that just means God, and brother, well that just means that's Christian, right? That's another word that we use for Christian. Um, but I, I think it's used over 200 times in the New Testament. This word brother, not for a, a, a literal biological brother, but the term for uh, another believer. And it's not a meaningless synonym for Christian, but it's so much more than that. So I just want you to hear what the, the first century hearer would hear in brother. It's the closest possible relationship. Put it in our society, where maybe our strongest bond that we understand in loyalty and commitment and all of that is, is marriage. It's almost like he's saying he, he would be referring in our society to one another as, as spouses, our, our closest possible, deepest possible relationship. It's that strong that we are to have with each other. Now, we would do good to see each other even as brothers and sisters, like we think about brothers and sisters. Like, I, I really strive to have to think of you all as my, as my, my family, like I think of family. Well, my... You know, I, I have a sister in Australia, and I love her, and I have my mom and dad, I love them, and my aunts and uncles, I, I really want to see you guys that way. It would go even beyond that, like the depth of the loyalty, if you want to make a comparison to the, to the um, ancient Near Eastern culture, would be even, maybe even stronger than that. So, uh, some of you have a great relationship with your siblings, I hope some of you do. Um, it's probably not even as strong as it might have been um, back then, as far as your loyalty goes. And so I just want, again, it's not to say that that, that society is right and wrong, or, or that we're right and wrong in how we view the closeness of relationships, but that word, brothers, or oftentimes you'll see in your note in the bottom of the Bible, brothers and sisters, it means both. That, that word informs our understanding or ought to inform our understanding of how closely we are supposed to relate to each other 
as God's family. You see that like, we can so easily just miss this language that just brushes by to us because we see it all the time and we're just used to it in our Christianese language. God is your father. God is your father, and he has made you his child. And if your dad is my dad, then that makes us brothers and sisters. Fathers, father, children, brothers, sisters. Not just God and Christians, but there's real meaning and weight to those words. Um, I love and appreciate that our church uses that family language, and I don't want to um, hinder that at all. We pray to the Father often because when we're praying, we say Father, we call each other brothers. I'll text somebody, hey brother, right? Um, we call, like I said, we call each other church family. Um, but I just, like, all I really want to do tonight is just really let that language sink in. And it's not just like the Bible is saying, well, this is, it's kind of like your family is just another family that you have. Um, this is your new family. We'll see next week. Just as much or even more so than the family that you grew up with or the family that you're going to hang out with on Thanksgiving. God is your dad. He's a good dad, so um, I don't want to assume all of you have good relationship or think highly of your dad. God is a good dad. It's maybe a whole another sermon to go into. And he isn't your dad because he has to be. He's your dad because he's chosen to be. He's chosen to adopt you in the fullest sense of that word even by putting his spirit in you so that you know that you are his child. You begin to look like him, like, like a child looks like their father and mother. So you can be assured that you're fully loved and accepted and that you belong. And then in the church now, you have a family, you have brothers and you have sisters, and we are an imperfect family. Uh, but we have a perfect father who's good and loves us. We have a perfect older brother who is good and loves us and sets an example for us. And family doesn't, it doesn't get better than that. It, it gets a little better in, in new creation in heaven. But we just want to learn and grow, and I would love for us to learn and, and continue to grow in what it looks like to live out that family uh, metaphor that God's designed for us, that he calls us. So, just a quick, one more demonstration of the family picture in the Bible. Uh, and I'll invite your, your input on this. Is anybody from families that um, kiss each other, like parents and, and siblings? Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. What's, what's that look like? So with... Brothers. Well, like when you greet each other. <laughs> Tell me, is it like I mean, my my daughter, and then he plants a kiss on your cheek, or or your dad kind of goes almost on the mouth, right? Anybody have a mouth kissing? My mom yet? and dad would both kiss me on the mouth right now. If they could. If if they would. As an adult, I've chosen to. I usually turn my turn cheek. the other cheek. <laughs> kiss me on the cheek. But if I did it, they would. We would greet each other, just like yes, it's so good to see you, and kiss each other. And yeah. But with my siblings, we kiss on the cheek and greet each other with hugs and yeah. just 
were very affectionate. You got mouth kissers? Well, I married a, a mouth kissing mother. Mm. <laughs> my mom. Yeah. She would do it. I'm the same as Mary Beth, but like my aunt, her sister in law, she'll kiss him in the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Or it, I mean, it's maybe maybe common for families, especially um, maybe not so common with American families, but to do the cheek kissing thing. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Like they're so offended if you don't. Really? They're like, you better. In Italy, it's like if you don't kiss them on the cheek, like both sides when you greet, they're like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. American. Really yeah. <laughs> Americans always suck. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm grossed out thinking about like a kiss from my parents, and I don't, they don't, they don't do that. <laughs> I don't even remember the last time I got kissed on the cheek, you know. Um, it was probably as a child. It, so where does the Bible talk about kissing? There's like five different times the Bible brings up kissing. In the New Testament, the Bible brings up kissing. What are those? Holy kiss. What is it? Greet the holy kiss. Okay, greet one another with a holy kiss. When Judas kisses Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Mm. Trivia. When Paul is, I think, leaving Ephesus, he or, or he's leaving the Ephesian elders, yeah. um, they're, they're crying and hugging and kissing. Um, the woman who uh, washes Jesus' feet with her hair is, is kissing his feet, right? So if, if you think about some of those, the, why, is, why is it so despicable that Judas is betraying Jesus with a kiss? Jesus says, would you, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Why is that so offensive? Because it's a sign of love and affection. Yeah, it's like love and affection and intimate. And like you're my you're my brother. You're my my close um, acquaintance. You're my close friend. And so Jesus is like, well, wait a second. It's it's you're gonna do this. Um, there's one more. The the prodigal son returns home in the story anyway, and his father runs out to meet him. And, um, you know, just it's it's seems passionately running out to greet this son that's returned to him and kisses him and embraces him. That's like that's the familial love of, of a father to a child. And if I mean if the, the parable is is about the father, right? So um, or about the sons, but the, the father is representing um, our father. Paul, when he instructs the churches five times greet one another with a holy kiss in different of the epistles. Um, until my study this week, I kind of, I would always think, oh, that's, that's kind of, that's weird, that sounds kind of strange. Um, I, again, I didn't grow up in a kissing family even, and so just to like greet other church members, other brothers with a holy kiss, that seems a little bit weird, which really doesn't mean an actual kiss. And, um, but I think that it is, it is not just, it, it wasn't just odd sounding to me because we don't, at least I don't culturally in America, greet with a kiss my, my brothers um, or friends. Um, but it's odd because I don't think of my relationship with one another in the church as, as that close, right? And so I'm not going to suggest that we implement the Holy Kiss at Nova Church, um, though I'd be down if we talk about it. Um, but uh, 
Cha-ching, cha-ching. Don't get our name around <laughs> Maybe, yeah, that would sell some tickets. Um, but maybe we should think culturally about, well, what is a comfortable way that you would treat the closest of your relatives, your brothers, your friends? And I think it would be maybe much more than we often treat one another. Eh, it's just this is another person, another member in the church. Right? Um, oh, but well, I've gotten a kiss from several of you out of love and trying to weird me out. Right? <laughs> uh, next week. Good. <laughs> I just got an invitation. <laughs> so next week, y'all, if if we are able to receive it, are you? If we're able to receive it, we're gonna see. I think clearly that this new family that we're in, the father's family, is actually the priority family over your earthly family. It actually takes priority, okay? I think we're gonna see that there is a tremendous, much deeper amount of love and commitment that we are to have to each other than we ever thought before. I think um, we're gonna be able to stamp out that um, saying that, well, I love, I love God, but I just don't love his church. Um, that's an impossibility, according to John. And just, I, I hope that we'll be able to see that this, like the spiritual, theoretical kind of reality of the church as family um, actually means that we are to relate to one another in certain types of ways. And so next week we'll just look at some of those practicalities and we'll ask the question, even I think at our fellowship meal this weekend, what does a family do? Like if, if we're given this family analogy by God, or this family metaphor, he gives it to us to understand, okay, I know kind of what a family is. I don't know what a per the perfect version of that looks like, but he's giving it to us as a picture. So we already, even before searching out other parts of scripture and whatnot, we already kind of know, well, okay, like a family. So, so what types of things does a family do? And we'll talk about that. Um, but for now, just let's just lean into that spiritual reality of us being a family and begin just to think through um, what, what does that mean for us and how we relate to each other because we kind of know how a family is supposed to be. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us in this um, endeavor that we've set on just to rightly understand what your church is really, I guess, supposed to look like. Uh, would you help us um, as we discover more and more how we are to operate as a body, as unique individuals for the sake of building up one another into the head? And I pray that you would show us how what we all have in common as brothers and sisters and how we ought to operate into that reality of a much deeper sense maybe than we've um, than we've done so before or thought about before. Help us, God, to pursue uh, what you call us to be for your glory and really for our good and for the sake of showing who you are to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.